And welcome back. This is the Focus Target Smod podcast, and uh, not Smodcast. That's a different podcast. <laughs> if any what of you are familiar, one? if you uh, if, well, if any of you are familiar with Jay and Silent Bob of Kevin Smith uh, fame, they have what's called a Smodcast. I don't know what that stands for, but check it out. It's actually pretty good. Um, nevertheless, this is the Focus Target podcast, and uh, I am Smiley. And as always, I am joined by Shy and Van. But today we have a special guest for you. Uh, we are joined today by the internet famous Unky Rona. Unky, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. We today are going to talk about a little thing called digital distribution, uh, the idea that games no longer need to be purchased in hard copy but can be downloaded directly to your computers and or video game consoles and kind of the effect that that's had on gaming in general. But uh, before we get into that, we've got a couple small cleanup items. Uh, I want to make a correction from our last episode where I in talking about Colony Wars, referred to the Federation of Free Worlds, which anyone who has played Colony Wars would smack me upside the head and say, League of Free Worlds, so sorry about that. Small mistake, but, uh, you know, might have a big impact one day if you go around talking about the Federation of Free Worlds. People aren't going to know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, and of course, before we get into the meat of our topic, we always want to talk about our question of the day. And uh, today we, we've got a little bit of a, a different question than what we've had in the past. This one, uh, I think, is going to maybe challenge us in a, in a different way. Because today I'm going to ask, what is the best game that you've never played? Uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page. When I ask about, when I say never, this can be either a game that you never got an opportunity to play because you you know, had other things going on. But even if it's a game maybe you just played a little bit, uh, but didn't feel like you gave it the the, the amount of time that was deserving, uh, I think that would that would fall into this category too. So let's start with our with our guest speaker, Anki Rona. What uh, what was the best game that you have never played, sir? Uh, that was definitely a game that I started to play, but I never went back and finished after playing it for a few hours, and that was actually The Last of Us. Uh, a game really good but for whatever reason I got distracted I never went back to it and it's just one of those games that I need to go back and play but at this point I might as well just try to get the remastered version on the PS4 Did either of you other guys uh, play Last of Us? I hadn't ever played that one. I've heard good things about it. I'm in the I, same boat as Ben. I played um maybe like 25 hours into it it was really really awesome and then I think I got Destiny shortly after because I, I started playing it only on the PS4, not on the PS3, when they did the remake. But um, once Destiny came out, that ended up taking my time away from it. My brother played it and says it's one of his like top ten games he's ever played. So He so, played it all the way through. Interesting. Yeah, I've known a couple of people who, who really liked it as well. So Last yeah. of Us that sounds like uh, one to keep an eye on. Uh, what about you, Shy? What, uh, what was the best game that you never played? This is tough, man. As you know, I start a lot of games and don't finish them. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's a lot of good games. Super Nintendo. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, um, I don't know. I think uh, I mean there's a lot of good, a lot of good ones I wanted to play. Um, but I think, I mean, and I think we talked about about series also fitting into this. And I got to say, like the Dark Souls series is a series that I've really wanted to um, put a lot of time into, and I just never have. And and I just, yeah, I mean, I regret. I mean, I, I always want to put more time into it. I never do. So that's that's a series that I know a lot of people like, and it's really solid. And I would wish I put more time into. Rowan, I know that was uh, actually a, bit, a series you were into for quite a while. Yes, it was. Van, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say I never really got into the, the first one, the Demon Souls. I bought it and had no idea what the playstyle was, so I just completely threw it away. And apparently, it's one of the best ones out of the entire series. I played all the other ones though. Van, what would you say the best game that you'd never played is? Um, before I answer that and upset Smiley to all hell, I would like to say that Smodcast, by the way, is because it's produced by Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier. So it's Smith and Mosier podcast, oh, Smodcast. Very good. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I've listened to quite a bit of the Smodcast. It's Jay and Silent Bob get old. It's uh, it's worth checking out. Uh, not that we're affiliated with them at all, but just from personal, from personally having listened to it, uh, uh, it's a pretty cool podcast. All right, so time to do one of my favorite things of all time, and that's upset Smiley. Yeah, my. Favorite I mean, game wait. that, or my my best game that I've never played had to have been Chrono Triggers. 
And it's absolutely surprising to me after learning all about Chrono Triggers and realizing that it's on SNES. And if you've listened to the past podcast, you know that's my favorite system. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's developed um, in part by a lot of the people from the Final Fantasy series um, who, or who launched the Final Fantasy series and part of the Final Fantasy development. So therefore, I'm sure it would incorporate a lot of really, really cool things that I liked from the Final Fantasy um, series and the overall RPG-esque of the time of SNES. So, Chrono Triggers, mine's hands down. Smiley, I will get to it one day, and I will love it. Well, you'll only get to the Chrono Trigger, because there's only one. There's no That's no right, S at I the always end. call it no, Triggers, and you no, get so this, mad every time. There's only, there's only one Trigger. Um, <laughs> and I would make the argument that that's probably the best game that anyone who hasn't played it hasn't played, but uh, maybe that's just personal opinion on my part. Uh, the, to answer my own question, the best game that I've never played, I think, is uh, Panzer Dragoon Saga. That was a game for, I think, the Sega Saturn. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong yeah. on that. Um, and I never had a Sega Saturn. And I'd heard, I've heard just heaps and heaps of praise upon it i've heard this kind of one of those games that makes the entire console worth owning in and of itself but i'd never played it and it's, it's really kind of a shame really I ought, I ought to try to go back and i could probably pick up a, uh, a sega saturn on the cheap and check it out one day but uh or perhaps use the dark arts of emulation but in one way or another that's that's one that i feel like i missed out on did any of you guys ever play that one I, I messed around with with uh, Saga a little bit like in store demo kind of style, but mm. uh, Orda they made a they continued the, the series with Orda on I think it was the original Xbox, um, and it was it was a good game. And I mean and, you know there was a time when Panzer Dragoon had like it was a pedigree, right? You people would talk about it as like solid series. I don't think a lot of people even know what what that is nowadays. Um, you know, if you talk to people about Panzer Dragoon, sure. Yeah, I mean it's, an, it's definitely an older game. Um... All right, guys. Well, thanks for your time on the question of the day. I hope maybe that gave some of our listeners, you know, some some cool ideas for maybe some games that they they had they haven't tried out themselves that maybe uh, might lead them to great joy to check those types of games out. We don't know because we've never played them by and large, with the exception of Chrono Trigger. You guys should all play that. All right, let's talk about digital distribution. So, digital distribution, just uh, for anybody who maybe doesn't know what what that means, I touched on it at the beginning of the podcast, but that's the idea that. You know, for, for years and years when games came out, you always either needed a cartridge or then a disc or some kind of, you know, you'd go out to the store and you'd purchase your game and you'd bring it back and put it into the into your machine. And that was true whether you're playing on a Nintendo or playing on your computer. You still needed to buy the CD-ROMs to install the software. But with the advent of the Internet and technology and, and the fact that there's high-speed Internet in pretty much every home, more and more companies are just distributing their games directly via the internet so you can go on your computer or on your playstation 4 or on your xbox one and just go to the internet and and just download the game right onto the hard drive on your pc or your console and uh, this has really obviously changed uh, gaming a lot there's there's a lot of people who now don't even buy physical copies of games anymore It's, it's almost become distasteful it's a waste of time waste of space more hassle than it's worse worth um, and so what we wanted to talk about a little bit to start the podcast is just kind of talk about the major players in the digital distribution world, kind of give you a framework of what the landscape looks like. And then uh, on the second half of the podcast, we'll kind of talk about kind of the pros and cons of it. Was what is, is this good for the industry? Is it bad for the industry? Is it good for gamers, bad for gamers? And what are maybe some of the hidden pitfalls of, of e-distribution? I mean, it, it sounds, when you think about it uh, on the surface, it sounds, oh man, that's super convenient, super easy. What's, what's, what could be wrong with just downloading your games, right? Well, there are, there are some drawbacks and we'll get into those. So um, when we go through, we're going to talk about the major distributors. And, and the first one that I think we have to start with is probably Steam. Um, if you haven't heard of Steam, it's, a, it's a basically a gaming platform uh, released all the way back. I think the first beta was in 2002. Two, and it was uh, it, it kind of came out along with Half Life Two, which Half Life Two, one of the iconic shooters of the PC generation. Um, and Steam, it's run by a, a company called Valve Corporation, and it's really become the giant in the industry. And uh, I'm actually going to turn this over to our guest speaker, uh, Rona, who we brought in specifically because we know that you have a long history of using the Steam application. So, you want to tell us a little bit about Steam? Sure. Uh, I was actually one of the few people who originally beta tested it back in the day with Counter-Strike 1.5. Back then, Steam was 
it was bad. Like no one liked it. It didn't get a foothold at all. It was really clunky. We constantly get disconnected. You couldn't even find Counter Strike servers to play it. Excuse me, play on. So you'd have to go back and uh, try to go back to the old way and connect directly by IP address. And uh, then for some reason, they just kept pushing on it constantly. Like that was their baby. And eventually now, it's, uh, it's amazing. You can buy and. So you can just really just buy any game that really gave the indie developers an open market to really start pushing stuff that they wanted to. Well, it's interesting because, and I, again, I didn't use Steam back back when you did at the beginning. So it sounds like at the beginning it was more of just like a, like almost like a multiplayer connector type of thing, like a place where you could find other games of Counter Strike and things like that, more so than a than an actual distribution situation. Is that? Accurate. That is very accurate. You could activate the games like uh, Half-Life, Deathmatch, Counter-Strike. I think there was Team Fortress Classic. And if you've ever actually pulled up the servers option on your Steam and you see a bunch of Counter-Strike servers and half or Team Fortress 2 servers, that's all you see now. That that was it. That was the Steam platform back in the day. There was no store. There was no. I mean, there was the games list, obviously, but there was no store barely had a functioning friends list and that was it interesting yeah, so I think I, one of the, oh, go ahead please i think one of the key features of steam was the introduction of being able to um like rona dabbled on a little bit he had you had to use in the past when you want to join your friend's server you literally had to get their ip or find them from that specific games um you know weak clunky list that they would have on there and have to ask them hey what did you title your entire server so you could put it in like letter for letter or do the ip what one of the um things that steam invented was actually that player list and you could right click on the player and just put join game even if you weren't in the game it would launch the game on your computer and put you in with them so it was really uh, a community game organizer um, as well as a distributor. And that was one of the, the first things that they did before anyone else. And it took off. And obviously, people still use it today. Well, it's interesting, too, because talking about like that, it, it, the other real system like that that was prominent at the time, I think, was probably Battle.net. And it's interesting that Steam kind of took that base and took it in a completely different direction where they now you know, have become a gaming development platform, whereas Battle.net never really did that. They just focused on the in-game matchmaking for the Blizzard games. Uh, so it's, it's just funny to see how those two companies kind of started with a, a similar program and went yeah. in such different directions. Just to put some dates into perspective real quick, 2002 was the beta that, that uh, Rona was talking about, and then the official release was in 2003. Half-Life uh, 2 launched in 2004, and then the Steam um, community and matchmaking was 2007-2008. So it was still out for a good three years um, before they were able to do like the friends list and the community and the matchmaking. What about you, Shai? Do you have a long history of using Steam, or are you relatively new to the Steam world? Um, I, the first time I ever heard of Steam was uh, when I was actually in college. I had a friend. Uh, we had a pretty. We had pretty. I went to a small private school, and uh, we had a pretty stringent firewall. And I remember a friend of mine set up a Steam server and like crashed our uh, our network for like a day, and all the IT techs <laughs> were like hunt him down That's and like awesome. and try, like he got like his turn talking to. And I, at the time, like Steam, what is this like a locomotive or something? What the crap is this? He's like, oh, this is awesome software, whatever. And so I wasn't I wasn't online gaming. I was I was we were doing a lot of, like Halo Two local multiplayer on campus at that time. So it wasn't really until I think I graduated. So it's probably about uh. It was probably more like 2009, 2010 before I first had my first experience with it. But yeah, I mean, I love, I mean, I love Steam. I use it a lot nowadays. And I think, I think most people who do PC gaming do. Like, I, th I think there's very few PC gamers who don't have Steam installed on their computer for good reason. I mean, as Rona said, there are so many indie games there and, and a lot of mainstream games too. It's very easy to purchase your games on Steam. They offer, a lot of times they offer ridiculous discounts uh, that you would not be able to get going to a GameStop or, or, or even an Amazon.com, something like that. Um, so it, it's really made a niche for itself and it has become kind of the flagship of digital distribution for the for the computer. Uh, go ahead. Well, I was just, just going to say... Um... I think it might be worth noting too that, as opposed to the other PC options we're going to list here soon, it seems like they seem they seem to be responses to Steam, right? Like Steam feels like it's the most inclusive of all of them as well. Um, you know, not just popular, but it like it. Yeah, I, I mean, it kind of. I guess that's what you just said, but uh, I think that how it that's how it distinguishes itself from kind of the pack. Sure, and th and that's a good segue because the next major distributor that is kind of the 
business competitor to Steam is probably Origins. Uh, Origin is the EA version of Steam, uh, where they, because EA, uh, uh, you know, one of the biggest developers in the United States, has a lot of different games, and so they decided we don't need to be letting Steam hog the show here. We got enough games of our own that we can then you know, pop up our own shop. So Origin is the, is the answer to Steam, not uh, a little, probably a little bit from a matchmaking perspective, but again, from that digital distribution, from uh, allowing people to purchase and download EA games directly through that. And one thing that is a little, maybe not different, but with Steam, a lot of times you don't have to get a game through Steam. You can get a game through Steam, and it's often convenient, but you don't necessarily have to purchase it through Steam. A lot of games give you the option. Um, my understanding, and, and again, I'm going to go to Rona on this because I know you have a little bit more experience than I do with Origin. Uh, my understanding is that a lot of EA games, you have to get it through Origin. You don't have any op- any other options of digital download. Is that correct? That is pretty uh, Actually, that's Correct. Over the last couple of years, what uh, EA did is they used to have a contract through Steam, and I think there was a falling out, and they decided to write their own digital distribution program, which turned into Origin. So now that's how you have to play games like uh, actually any real any real game. It's a Battlefield, Titanfall, uh, SimCity, yeah, Assassin's Sim City. Creed. Yeah, no, no, Assassin's Creed's Ubisoft. will be. Yeah, we'll be getting to them in a minute. Why do I do that? I did that in like our you first episode, You did do too, that in our, our very, very episode. first episode. That's right. <laughs> Maybe it's yeah. because it's a terrible game and I, I think Origin's <laughs> a terrible platform. Mm. Uh, Sorry, guys. We'll get, we're not going to get many sponsors. <laughs> Don't expect any Assassin's Creed cartridges coming your way, guys. Uh, but that is true. You have to play almost all all the exclusive EA games. You Except for uh, Bad Company 2, they never fully switched that out of Steam. You have to use the Origin client. And so that that was one of the things that really has turned people off to Origin, I think, is is being forced to use it for a lot of things. So to get to, again, as, as Van did earlier, let me give you a little uh, background on Origin. It was released in 2011, so considerably later than Steam, but right around that time that Steam was really becoming a household name. Uh, it was previously known as the EA Download Manager, which kind of gives you a an idea of, of what its purpose was. It was something that they were using to kind of get their game, you know, try to support and facilitate the download of their games that they thought they could morph into something to rival Steam. Um, Van, you obviously have given your thoughts about about how you feel about Origin. Um, what about you, Shai? Have you had any experience with the Origin uh, client? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I've, I've played Battlefield with a lot of the, with, with both uh, Van and Ben. Um, I've played uh, Rona, Sims. You mean? Oh, Rona, yep, Rona, um, and uh, and I don't know. I, so I I'm, I think I stand with a lot of people who I mean, like you said, it seems like the whole creation of Origin was to create a separate platform from Steam, which is, it you know, I mean, it's inefficient and it's and I think it's frustrating to the to the end user. You know, I mean, if if Origin existed separately of Steam, but you could buy games on both platforms, that would be I'd be fine with it. But then again, probably nobody would use Origin because everybody was using Steam before Origin came out. So yeah. I think. Uh, it's just, I mean, I think, I mean, like most end users, I'm just frustrated by the very existence of the of the platform. Yeah, I think, I think the most frustrating part about Origin was the clunky releases and the continuous errors that they have um, that makes the game make a lot of the games essentially unplayable, and the fact that they they are so bad and they force you to use it. Like, it's 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 bad enough that it's the game is bad, and then it what compounds the terribleness is the fact that they force you to use their terrible distribution system with their game that is absolutely terrible also so you have to support origin by using it and by logging in and supporting their numbers when their yearly statements come out and all that junk even though if you had any other way around it you would never ever touch that stupid little orange circle i'm out all right, so <laughs> I feel like that puts a decent bow on Origin. So let's go to Uplay, which Van obviously has no idea even exists because it is the platform I for am Assassin's kind of Creed. I'm a master with, uh, with uh, Just Dance, by the way, which is Uplay. So. Mm, interesting. I can believe that, actually. Um, so Uplay is, is kind of, you know, j- with the success of any great company, uh, you know, you're always going to have a lot of a lot of people cropping up. And while Origin was kind of the biggest one, mostly because EA is such a huge developer, Ubisoft is another large developer, um, most notably for the Assassin's Creed games, which Van does not like very much. But I 
I was a big fan of the Assassin's Creed games, especially the early ones. I've towered on a little bit just because they've been maddenized, so to speak, which, you know, for anyone who is not familiar with sport or sporting games, um, the Madden series produced by EA is known far and wide for having very bare bones content updates where they release a new version of the game every year with, you know, a couple of dinky features and an updated roster and charge full price for it. And Assassin's Creed has kind of gone that direction too, where every, every seven or eight months there's a new Assassin's Creed game and it's really kind of just, uh, you know, being milked as a cash cow. Uh, so that I think is probably where some of the, unhappy feelings that maybe we've already heard on this podcast that I'm sure are shared by others uh, comes. But uh, So Ubisoft wanted to join the party as well rather than you know team up with Steam or Origins. I don't know if there's any history there. I know, Rona, that was an interesting point you made about Origin working through Steam until they had some kind of contractual falling out. I don't know if something similar happened with Ubisoft or if they just felt that they wanted their own platform to kind of rival it. But, uh, but that's what Uplay is all about. Uh, small correction there, uh, EA and Origin didn't run through Steam. You could just play a EA game on Right, Steam. right. That's what I meant. I mean, as far as their games partnered with Steam, you could you know, use Steam as the platform to get EA and presumably Ubisoft games up to a certain point. I know you could get at least certain Assassin's Creed's were available for, through Steam, I believe. <laughs> I, I feel like Black Flag was. Actually, all of them are. The interesting thing about Uplay is right now, it, it while it still functions as a digital distribution system, you can buy games directly through it. They don't force you to use it. You can still buy every single Ubisoft game through Steam right now, launch it. It'll launch the Uplay launcher on top of that for your friends list and your achievement tracking. Interesting. So, so they, it looks like, went a different way, which obviously the origin system engendered some ill ill will by forcing everybody to use their platform. And so it seems like Uplay uh, has kind of maybe taken the wiser road to try not to alienate so many people by saying you have to use ours. They can say you use whatever you want, but ours is going to run anyway whether you like it or not. Exactly. And one, actually, here's an even more interesting point. The Uplay on Far Cry 4, which I know is one of Van's favorite games on the PS4, that actually has Uplay running on top of it. But it's so integrated, you don't even know that it's there. And I was, I was going to mention that too, Ronan, and, and since you talk on it, I'll talk on it a little bit also. Far Cry 4 was the most recent game that I platted. It was so amazing. It was so much fun. I didn't play the Far Cry 3, which I heard was better, so I'm super excited about that. Maybe that could have been one of my best games you never played. But Maybe. there's some really good Uplay titles um, that personally that I liked. Um, Far, Far Cry 4, um, obviously the Just Dance is, you know, was fun to, to mess around in. And then the Stick of Truth, even the South Park, was Ubisoft. So they're doing something right with titles and, and fun games, at least uh, for my taste. And I have no gripes with Ubisoft. I think they're doing a, a great job. Um, really, I got no, no. Um, I think, the, what is the, the phrase, peg to stand on or whatever when it comes to Assassin's Creed, because I haven't well, played any of the Assassin's Creed. I, I guess it's, it's usually a leg to stand on, That's but I guess one. if you're a pirate, oh, it, would be, it would be a peg to stand on. So, so <laughs> I got no peg to stand on. So yeah, I can't. I, I mean, because I never played any of the Assassin's Creed, but I did read all the terrible reviews and jumped on the Assass ba Assassin's Creed bashing bandwagon um, when it happened. Because I think it just coincided with the poor launch of, of uh, Battlefield and a couple other ones. So, well, we've already talked on this podcast extensively about the bad launch for Assassin's Creed. I think it was five. Do you want me that, to talk uh, about it for a second? Uh, no, actually, Shy, why don't you talk about it? Because Shai's been, Shai's been quiet on this a little bit, and I'd like to get him involved. Well, it's funny that, uh, I mean, what all you guys are saying, um, like, I don't know, to your point, Smiley, like, I got into Assassin's Creed late with Black Flag, and it ties back into what Ben was saying, because I was actually going to bring this up, Rona. in that um, Rona was saying... What did he say, um, no, no, I was, uh, yeah, Rona. Um, what Rona was saying, because I was actually going to mention that as well, in that um, I was going to mention... That you know that you play is not is not mutually exclusive with Steam, and and unfortunately, while you while it may not be as egregious as as Origin, it's still I feel like just as annoying when you go to play a game using Steam and you open it with Steam, and then it starts opening another launcher to use Ubisoft's proprietary friend list and achievements. So then you have to now use the Uplay launcher to then open up you know the game that you wanted to play. Um, so I don't know. I think I think it, in, in a way it is equally frustrating that you can't just go Steam directly into the game. Um, and maybe that was just a problem with buying in, in Steam versus Uplay. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed Black Flag. Um, but uh, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I also agree that, that Assassin's Creed has become too annualized, and uh, I also don't really have too much interest in using Uplay as a standalone project, you know, as, as a standalone product. All right, well, sorry to uh, Rona, whose real name has been revealed now multiple times. If you get any hate mail from the internet, they still know your last name, right? So we'll, I think we're okay. <laughs> <All right>. uh, <laughs> um, so our final, maybe not final, but but the next big um, distributor on our list, and, and it, it took a while. So all three of these previous ones that we've talked about, Steam, Origin, and Uplay, are primarily PC-based. Not that their games aren't played on consoles, but uh, you don't need a launcher or anything like that to, to play your game on, on, a, on a PlayStation or an Xbox. However, PlayStation and Xbox each have their own interfaces, which is PlayStation Network, also known as PSN, or the Xbox Live, which predates PSN by a number of years. Both of these um, kind of networks were initially made with kind of the same purpose as Steam's original purpose, which was to help people play multiplayer games together on the consoles. So um, for a long time in the earlier days of gaming, multiple multiplayer games were traditionally done on the PC. If you wanted to play multiplayer on a console, you generally played local multiplayer, which is, you know, you would sit down in front of the same TV with a couple guys and have two to four controllers and all be playing together that way. But you didn't, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to connect with somebody around the world playing a Super Nintendo because Super Nintendos didn't connect to the internet and neither did PlayStations. But as we moved into the X, uh, original PlayStation, I should say, uh, but as we moved into, you know, the Xbox 2, Xbox uh, I'm sorry, Xbox 360 and Xbox One, which is the newest version, and the PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4. Now, Internet's become uh, a standard feature on these consoles. And so worldwide Internet play uh, or multiplayer play is obviously possible. And so the Xbox Live and Xbox and the PlayStation Network networks network. No, man. Uh, might need a little cleanup on Idle Smiley here with the with the, with the editor here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, regardless, you guys get what I'm saying. You know, they, they've kind of jumped into the fray too, and they're not necessarily competing with Steam so much as they're really competing with um, game stores. And I, and this is something I'm really going to ask you about because I'm not sure what the interplay here is between something like a GameStop that that would retail games. Um, like it seems to me that if you can go onto your PlayStation from the comfort of your own couch and just download a game and it doesn't cost anything extra to do that, um, that, that seems like it's in direct competition to the, the stores that these games are sold at, which in a way seem like they're partners with these, these stores. So what, what can you tell me, uh, again, I'm going to start with, uh, with Mr. Rona, what, um, do you see the PlayStation Network and the Xbox Live's ability to download these games as, as directly competing with, with game stores? Uh, it really depends on what's going on because I know there's certain contracts and stuff like that where the game stores, like, I'll just use GameStop as an example. That's one everyone recognizes. They will actually that's the only get, one left. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, they have deals and contracts with the uh, developers or the publishers of these games, where they get the game a little bit early. That's why you're just like, get it first on GameStop or whatever, and they'll release it later on the distribution. So the people who are nitpicky and have to have it right then and there can go get it. And I think that's really the only reason why they're even surviving. Because I know a lot of people, myself included, will not, I'll wait for it to go online. I won't go buy it from GameStop because I hate the way GameStop runs their business. Uh, so I would say sort of, it really depends on how much of a contract they still have with the publishers. Yeah, I think I think the other the other thing that a, a shop like GameStop will try to do, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts, is they'll off, offer oftentimes offer exclusives for the game. Where if you pre-order through GameStop, you get a bonus X, Y, or Z item in the game, something like that. So they try to they still are trying to incentivize people getting it through their platform but uh, again it, it seems like an interesting dichotomy because these in a way these guys are partners because you know sony and and microsoft need somebody to sell the hard copies of their game but at the same time they're driving them out of business with their own digital download um what about you van what do you what do you know about this that from a from an economics perspective 
First off, I like GameStop. So if GameStop wants to send me anything free, feel free to. I really like you guys and what you do. Um, with that being said, shameless. I think it's interesting that um, you know, all, although GameStop is a, is a brick and mortar mortar center, um, they do sell digital download codes as well. So they're still getting a, a slice of the pie from the digital download realm. Um, you know, you can go in there and, and buy the the code, so that way you don't have to wait for their twelve o'clock launch. Or maybe it's a smaller title, and they're not going to have a twelve o'clock or midnight launch. You can actually download it at twelve o'clock, a game that you bought at GameStop, and that's for PC, for you know Xbox, for PlayStation, whatever. Um, so they are in to digital downloading as well, um, but I. I honestly thought GameStop was going to go away once I saw the digital distribution um, take over, but they've been doing a really good job of being a, a good player in the in the industry. So I, kudos to them. Actually, I just had a second thought, but if I could, go ahead. Do you like GameStop thing. now? No, no, I still I still don't like them. But the interesting thing is, you can actually buy Steam and EA Origin gift cards from GameStop. So somebody who's looking for a gift that's true can actually, and PlayStation exactly. And That's so true. Somebody who's like like a parent looking for a gift for their kid and doesn't know what they want for a game, they can just buy them a gift card. So GameStop is actually still making money from other digital distribution centers. Yeah, I don't I don't think they're as much as a a competitor as they are a facilitator at this point. And they're 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 piggybacking off the digital distribution. And they they're doing a good job of it, it business wise. Interesting. Uh, that's not a that's not something I would have considered. What about you, Shy? What uh, what are your thoughts on this matter? I think it'd be interesting to see how much of GameStop's business is digital distribution, how much is new product, and how much is used. Because I've been willing to bet that used products are a significant majority. And I think that as digital distribution takes off, which I think it is continuing to do so, then, I mean, that just naturally means there's less and less used products out there. And I think this is something we'll talk about later. But I think that GameStop is going to suffer from that. Um, I think that... uh, I think that um, what's interesting is that, like, so each platform kind of has their own, uh, like, when it comes to PSN and Xbox, they both kind of have their own, uh, like, some, well, I don't know about PSN as much, but I don't know if you guys know it's too, a lot about the EA Access program, but how uh, on Xbox One, if you pay $5 a month, you can basically play a couple hours of, like, of, like, new EA games for free on your Xbox One. Um, it's, like, a limited trial. I think it's, like... It's normally like five hours or so and then like your trial ends but um but like so i mean that that's that's one way the digital distribution like on xbox one is you know like one way they're taking advantage of that and then like i know van kind of touched on this but like a lot of times like on our on ps4 which i own like when I, I, if i buy a digital game i can actually have the game ready to play at midnight like from my couch you know so when i bought bloodborne i was able to like download it and patch it so that as of midnight the day it came out it was yeah, I didn't have to go to GameStop and get it at midnight and drive home. Like at midnight, I was on my couch and I started playing it, which is which is kind of cool. So like a lot of these digital distribu- distributors, like PSN and Xbox, and Xbox are coming up with ways to make it more and more convenient to buy digitally as opposed to do other things. Well, what's really interesting about that is a lot a lot of these shops are taking it a step further and selling their games before midnight. Um, to match up with international datelines and stuff. So an example of that was The Witcher 3, which the day that it was supposed to release, it actually released at my GameStop. It was supposed to be a midnight release, but they started selling it around 5 o'clock because it was an international release. And when the date changed at the you know the UTC or whatever the international dateline that they used for it was, all the people who had digital download copies, either on their PCs or on their uh, consoles, were able to just get right in. And so basically, GameStop's like, "Wow, this isn't really fair." The, you know, people who downloaded get it now, and we're making people wait till midnight. So we're just going to actually start selling it. So, to to back up what you just said, that they really seem to be aware of kind of the the ground that they're seeding to a digital a digital distribution model and are trying to do things that maybe are unorthodox. Like I would never expect. Five years ago, a company like GameStop to break a midnight release rule for something like that, especially on such short notice, which they did when they found out about it basically the day of. So uh, it is interesting to see how things are changing right before our eyes. And also to talk about that that digital uh, or that midnight release or the UTC release, uh, another reason they're doing this is not because GameStop itself, but because of the players. The players were upset, especially on multiplayer games. Oh, yeah. Say you had a Battlefield game and somebody could be rank 8 by the time you even get the release. And that's not fair to them because obviously ranks, you know, you became more powerful in the game. And when you're player versus player, uh, rank 8 is going to usually dominate a rank 1, even though that rank 8 may only have 8 hours into the game. So the players were getting really, really upset, especially just within the U.S. If there's a U.S 
US only server. Um, and it's a PvP game. A lot of times GameStop will start releasing it on the West Coast at 9 p.m. now instead of 12. So we touched on this earlier, but the, the final point we make before we take our little break here is um, around the oversaturation of the market. Steam has been wildly successful in what they've done, and it's really brought up a lot of smaller things. We've already talked about five or six different ways that you could go out and buy games online for either a console or your computer. Um, Shy, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a small place that you had had some experience with. I think uh, you said when you got, uh, was, it, um, was it Bloodborne? No, it was The Witcher 3, actually. Witcher 3. I'm sorry, Witcher 3. Go ahead. No, well, yeah. I mean, I was just going to, I mean, we've already, you know, you can see the breadth of stuff we've already talked about. And then uh, when I actually got my new computer about three or four months ago, yeah, the NVIDIA card came with uh, two free games, um, Arkham Knight and Witcher 3. And Arkham Knight was through Steam. But uh, Witcher 3 was through a company called GOG, which is a goodoldgames.com, which is a another digital distributor. Their thing is DRM-free games, which is kind of cool. Um, I really hope they do succeed. But once again, I have this... Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you. Can you uh, explain DRM-free to, to people maybe who aren't as familiar? Um, I mean, I can let someone else explain it. I'm sure oh. someone else can explain it better <laughs> than I can. I mean, I know that has to deal with digital rights management, and I believe maybe not having to be online when playing it, but I don't know that I can give a, a treatise on uh, exactly what DRM in its entirety it, means. Oh, don't look at me. I never really looked into it. All right. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take this one then. <laughs> uh, so, so DRM-free basically just means that it's – and this isn't going to be a technical thing because obviously none of us really have a, a really firm understanding of it. But uh, the idea is that you can uh, – for one, that you generally can play it on any system or any machine. So um, if, it's, if it's not DRM-free, usually that means you have a key to it. And once you activate that key, it's no longer good if you try to put it on another machine uh, and what it, what it, what it's basically there is to to prevent piracy it's to prevent shy getting witcher 3 and then saying oh hey you guys should try this game let me give it to you let me send it to you through the internet because it's you know especially for downloaded games if shy can download it there's no reason that he can't host it and let other people download it so the the idea behind the drm is that it, it prevents one person from buying the game and sharing it kind of prevents the whole napster effect if you remember napster from back in the day when you know one person could buy a cd and share it to the entire world and then nobody else ever had to buy it if they didn't want to um so that's being DRM free does also have to do, as Shai mentioned, with a lot of times games require online, like require an active internet connection to be playing it, and DRM uh, is tied to that too. But I don't have a lot of detail around that. Sorry, Shai. Please continue. No, I no, just wanted so, to make sure our our listeners were aware. No, I think it's good. I think we talked about uh, explaining abbreviations, but uh, and I think like you just described DRM in a very seemingly positive way. But I think that like I think it is a frustration to gamers in a lot of cases. But all all I wanted to say was you know it was funny because one of the games I got was through Steam, and then this other game was through a, yet another platform. And so now I have like four different dis- distributing you know programs from different dis- distributors on my computer and just yeah i mean it's it's it it almost when you want to play a game but you know you have to go to a platform you rarely use to open it up and play it and you like i don't know it just it can make it a i mean you almost think about like having like four different consoles in your apartment in front of your tv and like you know you think about you want to play a game and but it's not the one on the you know the console that you have hooked up so you're like ah do i really want to like yeah, reconnect the wires and hunt for like different parts to that console, and it may not be that may not be the best example, but I mean, I think it does add a, a barrier to the gamer, um, just in in wanting to mess with all these different platforms. I think uh, I think there is oversaturation. That would be my my anecdotal experience. Rona, do you have any other uh, smaller gaming platforms you have any experience with that we've that we've neglected to mention? Actually, I thought uh, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking of some more. You have the Nintendo eShop, which is access to the 3DS, so now you don't even have to buy little cartridges for your 3DS. It just takes up space on your. Uh, yeah, that's true. I've I've used that drive. myself, as a matter of fact. I, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I actually uh, I couldn't buy Pokemon through Amazon, and uh, I was getting really frustrated. And then I realized I could just eShop it, and now I have Pokemon on my 3DS. I didn't even have to leave the leave the house, but. Uh, Another smaller one that I thought is actually making an improvement is Battle Battle.net Launcher. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that a little bit briefly, but they've really started to take that same route, right, where pretty much all Blizzard games can be found on the Battle.net Launcher, and it's kind of a hub for if you want to play Hearthstone or Diablo or World of Warcraft or whatever other games they have. Exactly, and what the interesting thing about that one is you you're, you have your friends list like you do with Steam, but the interesting thing about the Battle.net launcher is if I'm playing World of Warcraft and you're playing Diablo, I can still talk to you through chat. 
through the same chat. I didn't even have to switch games. It's See that that is a pretty cool feature, and I'm sure because it seems like a lot of Blizzard gamers play across a lot of their different games. Like I think a lot of people who play World of Warcraft also play Diablo and also play Hearthstone, things of that nature. I imagine that's a feature that is pretty well received. Exactly, and the nice thing about it is you don't ever have to exit out of the game. If I want to talk to somebody on Steam, I still have to minimize out or go through the Steam overlay. With the battle launcher, I can just talk to them through the in-game chat. So it's really handy. Yeah, Steam is kind of annoying that way. Van, any final thoughts before we take a break? No, I think we, I think we did a great job summing it all up. Uh, one last thing I'll say is uh, going back to what uh, Ben was saying about the Nintendo's eShop is it just shows you how saturated the market really is when Nintendo is on board with an online distribution platform. Like they've always been so far behind the eight ball when it comes to any inter- like multi- internet multiplayer or any of that stuff. Like they always seem so backwards and, and like, like Ben said, they've got their own working shop doing the exact same thing. So we'll be right back. We're going to take a break, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of get now – we, now that we've laid the groundwork, we're going to kind of try and dig into the good, the bad, and the ugly of digital distribution. So stick with us. We'll be back with Focus Target Podcast. Let me ask you this, why does Smiley always got a rap? I just cannot see how to come up with things like every week. It's really hard work, guys. I ain't a freak. I can't come up with this stuff off of the top of my head. It's really hard for me. I'd rather lay in in bed, be chilling out, get with the DK in the background. See, this rap is terrible, but we're going to go to town. Let's move it. Uh. All right, well, we're back with the Focus Target podcast. I'm sorry about that rap. It was, uh, it was something. It was uh, good but- until you said it was bad. Well, it was bad until it started, and then it continued to be bad. Um, but we're not going to worry about that. We're going to move right on to the pros and cons of e-distribution. And uh, so I'm going to get a couple out of the way right off the bat. Obviously, the biggest advantage is the convenience factor. And in the America, the land of the convenient, uh, convenience always wins. And so that's why digital distribution is, is so popular and has risen so quickly. It's just – it's why would you go all the way to the store and interact with people when you can just sit on your couch and download it directly? So that's, I mean, that's the big reason for it. And obviously from a producer's uh, or a, a game creator's standpoint, there's obviously less costs. If you can just distribute your data online, you don't have to worry about packaging and shipping and uh, physically distributing copies of games to, to different game centers. And there's also, there's so much less risk, in my opinion, for digital distribution because it doesn't cost, you don't have to make an inventory. You don't have to produce 5,000 games, 50,000 games, and then if your game flops, they sit on the shelves unsold. Like, that goes away. You've just, you know, people buy it as they need it. Now, maybe there's a drawback to that in that there's no guaranteed purchase by the retail shops. Um, but but those are the things that come up right away. Um, Rona, as our guest, I'm going to turn it over to you. Tell me what do you think, what what do you think the best parts, other than what we've talked about, about digital distribution are? What do you like best about things like Steam or just about distribution in general? Uh, I think probably the thing I like about it the most is the fact that it's, it's just so easy with, uh, considering how, you know, I've, everybody at this point, just a lot of people have high-speed internet, and I don't have to worry about losing a disc. I'm sorry, hang on one second. Smiley, I want to piggyback on something you said real quick about the uh, sure. cost of um, distribution and everything. And yeah. just just while it's fresh in the mind, that's actually um, like Gabe Newell, and I can't remember what article it was. Um, Gabe Newell, um, you know, the the uh, owner and developer of Steam. Um, that's one of the things he said was exactly what you talked about the risk in you know you don't have to invest everything into the cartridge and then send out a ton of cartridges and then if it's a flop you lose all the money like you mentioned so it was there was a lot of risk management involved with sending out a cartridge he says so it gives developers the convenience to release games that may not be completely intact as we would like them um, so he says it's 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 beautiful in the fact that you can get them out there, but he says that he feels we went too far in extreme the other way, where before yeah you had to be super cautious, and we talked about it a million times where cartridges back in the day they didn't they didn't mess up often, you know they they often worked and everything, and now when games come out they come out like they're almost really in what should be considered a beta and not a final product. So he says that's really in fault because of the dis- digital distribution, but exactly what you were saying, Gabe feels the same exact way. That's my boy, you my boy, Gabe. <laughs> Oh, I like for that. Yep. 
Chai, you got something? Go ahead. Yeah, I actually wanted to piggyback in an opposite direction because I think that when you talk about developer risk, I think that the, what easily comes to people's mind is is major developers, right? Like people like EA and Ubisoft, people like that. But imagine the state of independent gaming, independent sure. games right now if digital distribution didn't exist because I think a, a large portion of indie games don't ever you know, get a print. They never get a physical release. Some do, but I think without digital distribution and that in that low risk um, for 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 development for indies, I think like stuff like Faster Than Light and a lot of indie games that a lot of us really enjoy, um, they they may not have seen the light of day because it, just, it would have been too much risk and not you know the reward wouldn't have been there. The faster than light of day, some might say. Um, yeah, Rona did touch on that earlier, right? That Steam has really been the champion of the independent gamer. And really, you know, you have things like Project Greenlight, where you can garner up community support for a game to try to get it released on Steam. And, I mean, it really gives in develop, independent developers a platform to roll on. Rona, did you, uh, did you have some thoughts before you got uh, attacked by birds? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> Apologize to the listeners. I have a couple of parakeets who decided to go a little wonky. Uh, but uh, I think the convenience of the fact that I can have, like in my Steam library, I have like 120 games. I don't have to worry about the media. All I have to worry about is my account information. If I have that, I can download and play those games anytime I want. And the nice, the really nice thing about it now is I can actually share those games with the computers in my house. So... It doesn't, like with the old PC games, you have to install it and it take forever and you lose the disc or the disc would get scratched. The old PC games are not as sturdy as a cartridge and you freaking lose the you know, disc, you're out of luck. And there was no way to get another copy without buying it, but with the digital distribution, I don't have to worry about that anymore. In fact, I can actually, it, it, it have almost gotten it to the point with Steam where you can share games with buddies like you would share a console game and you don't need the physical media anymore. And just, that's just, to me, a really cool idea. Well, that's a, an interesting segue because that's something that some people maybe look at as a drawback of digital distribution. And uh, it kind of ties in a little bit with the piracy side of it, right? But I mean, I think, especially with console gaming, it was very common to loan games to your friends. I, I know I have a number of games in my house right now that were loaned to me by somebody and they have not yet come to collect them back. Yeah, when are you um, going to send those back to me, by the way? Hey, <laughs> keep it down. Uh, from the peanut gallery all right um back to the peanut gallery though van what i mean do you share games a lot do you feel like you've encountered the same thing as rona where you don't have as much trouble sharing games online because i i know that there's been a push for that but i haven't seen a lot of evidence of being able to share digitally downloaded media um i i do share games like i mentioned um was a last of us earlier I share that with my brother, um, so he, he did borrow that from me. Uh, I, I have a small network of people that I share from, and then, you know, with, with the advent of the inter, interwebs and all this um, digital distribution and multiplayer um, outlets like PSN and whatnot, you know, that's where you guys come along. And, and I don't know. I don't think we've shared games with each other, right? I, I mean, I know you guys shared a book, and you guys spent like $20 to ship a book over, even though it would have only cost you $5 to buy the book. But I don't think you guys, we've shared many games that way. Well, but I mean, I'm talking more about digital distribute, distributed games. I oh, mean, gotcha. obviously, we know how to share games physically, but like, if somebody wanted to borrow a game that you downloaded, are there ways for that to happen? Like, let's say somebody wanted to, you know, try out Destiny or something. Like, there's no way you can let them borrow Destiny the, if you downloaded it, right? Or am I wrong about that? I don't, I don't want to admit to any violations of TOSs, but my brother and I did use the use the same uh, Steam account. So that we could do exactly just that. However, we were behind the same firewall. We were behind the same house. But he had the computer in his room. I had a computer in my room. And we used to share games that way. We just said, hey, let's use one one uh, Steam name. And we'll just do it that way. Interesting. What about you, Shai? Do you What do you think as far as the state of game sharing? Like, Is that something that people should be concerned about? Or is it something where if you want to play a game, maybe you shouldn't be a freeloader and you should just buy it yourself? Um, I think that uh, I don't know. I think that it was a big concern, right? I think it, I think it's one of the first things that uh, that came up um, as digital distribution began. Began, and I think that also the trend nowadays away from local co-op. I think ties into that, right? A lot more games nowadays, and I think, in fact. On the flip side, very few games actually support local co-op now, and I think a lot of people have similar concerns that not only just sharing games, but even be able to share that gaming experience um, is you know like locally is going down. But I think, um, and I think uh, we haven't really touched on it, but 
but PlayStation, I don't, I don't know if Xbox has a similar system. I think I was trying to do a little research before this podcast, and I couldn't find anything. But I know PlayStation has a system called SharePlay on the PS4 that released uh, last October that uh, that does actually allow you to share games. Not only like share a game with someone, like allow them to take control, but also actually if it's a multiplayer game. Um, be able to actually uh, play it with them, and I'm actually looking at their at its web the website right now for SharePlay, and uh, and it looks like as long as the game is on the PS Store, um, in in the um, your friend's country, you can actually do that. You can actually um, do the SharePlay. There's some PS Plus requirements possibly of, of one or both people having to be um, subscribed to PlayStation Plus, but uh, I think that's a cool feature. And I think that I think we'll see more and more of that in the future. Actually, some of these companies allowing you to even share just you know digitally distributed games. Indeed, and so that ties a little bit to another, perhaps, critique of the digital distribution, and that's the idea of long-term ownership. I think one of the benefits of buying a physical copy of a game is that, you know, right now I can go into my room and grab a Nintendo game off the shelf and plug it into my Nintendo. Uh, As Van may have mentioned in previous podcasts, I might have to blow on it and bang on the machine a little bit to get it to work, but the game is still there and the game still exists um, and there's no limitations, even though that company may no longer exist. The you know, I mean, not that Nintendo doesn't exist, but the individual developer may be long gone. There may be no support for it, um, but I can still play it. Whereas a lot of games now, if you have the a digital copy and, uh, you know, what what's to prevent... Uh, you know, companies from just, you know, either deactivating your content when they go down out of business or, um, you know, if you lose, you know, your, you know, if your your PC gets wiped and you don't have it, you know, the larger groups obviously allow you to, you know, have you a little bit of security with something like Steam. You, you know, there's not a lot of chance of Steam going down anytime soon. But for some of these smaller things, you know, especially I think back to that GOG that, uh, that Shy, you got The Witcher 3 from, like, do you have any concerns that you know three four years from now if you wanted to pick up the witcher 3 you might not be able to because you got through a shop like that what what do you think specifically about that if i might ask i mean i haven't thought of that specifically I, i'm not too concerned they seem to be doing really well um like i think that uh um i think they're doing all right i think um and i i, I hate to to default to this but i wonder if and unfortunately i mean you gave the example of old uh you know older consoles i wonder if that's just the time we live in though you know i mean i think more and more games are tied into an online environment just in general and so you almost wonder if a lot of games in the future will just be unplayable anyway <laughs> like you know, whether or not the service whether or not you could even have a physical copy of that game if if, if the servers for, for the company supporting it went down would would you would, would you even be able to use the game um and so i wonder if that's just the time we live in is is just is just that you know that we're dependent upon these these companies continuing and services continuing to be able to play these games. Let me bounce it back to Van because I think that's a, that's a good example you bring up. Like, what do you think about a game that you've professed to love quite a bit, which is Destiny? Like, personally, I have a hard copy of my Destiny disc, but to Shai's point, it's an online. It's a game that requires the internet to play. So, how do you feel about the idea that? You know, if they decide to, if Bungie, despite their claims of a 10-year plan for Destiny, um, decide that they don't want to support it next year because it's just not being profitable, that you might not even be able to play that game anymore. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not okay with that. Um, you know, and I, and that was one of my concerns, especially with one of the games that I was most invested in, and that was Final Fantasy XI. Um, that's a that's a full-on server-based based game. Um, granted, it's still going now. You know, 14 years later or whatnot um, in the U.S. But um, that was always a concern of mine is putting all these hours and, and just knowing that that character is only going to last as long as they want it to last. And I have nothing to say about it. Like you talked about, put your old school, you know, Legend of Zelda Link to the Past and rock on your old school uh, Link character and, and, and he's still going to be there. But when, you know, with all these other ones that are, are server based games, um, they essentially have the power and I'm not okay with that. And I I don't know if there's any rule or law violation or something, but in in america or, or any place you know that's that's reasonable when you buy something you own it you are the you are the sole owner of that item and thus should remain with you or in your possession until you deem otherwise and that's not the case with these server based games it almost so, seems uh, like that the the product itself is devalued Right, like you're not even really buying these games anymore in the traditional right, sense. You're, you're leasing them, right? You're renting you're, it. You're renting them until yeah, you're renting it. Such you're a leasing time. It. Yeah. yeah, I'm not okay with that. Um, but then again, do I not want them to develop servers for me to play Battlefield 4 on? No. So it's it's a give and take. And I guess now 
like you said, it's it's the way of the future. And um, you know, I hate using the word acceptance, but at least we know what we're getting into when we purchase a title. Whereas before, when it was you know brand new, it it seemed kind of like a slap in the face. What about you, Rona? What what kind of thoughts do you have on this? I think uh, one of the big negative things about uh, DRM in general is the fact that you can't. And now Steam is this is bringing back to Steam is actually breaking new ground here, but you couldn't return them. Like if you bought a game and you shot yourself in the foot, you're done. It's like, well, I'm out sixty bucks. I can't even return this damn thing. Mm-hmm. And now Steam is basically opening the window to say, you know what, you played this game for less than two hours, you can return it and give you all your money back and take it out of your library. So it's slowly getting there, but in the past, for like the past ten years, you couldn't return your game. You just buy it and be out of money. And that was that- terrible. Man, Rona, you are so good at segueing to each new topic. Like it's like you're not <laughs> even trying. It's amazing. So the next thing I want to talk about is just that is that this and Shai touched on this quite a bit before. That um, used games have always been a, a big part of the market. Like uh, there's a lot of people out there who have a long history of buying a game. Not playing it just for a couple hours, but really enjoying it, playing it thoroughly, putting 40, 50, 60 hours on it, mastering it or platting it, as I think uh, I think Van said earlier, which you know basically means they, they 100% of the game, got everything done that they needed to, and then they feel like they're done with it, right? I, I think, Van, you, you can probably point to Far, Far Cry 4 as an example game like that, where you played, you got a lot of enjoyment, you definitely got your money's worth. But then you're pretty much done, and you felt like, ah, I'm probably not going to play this game again. And for many, many years, it's been the case that you generally take that game to back to a game store and trade it in for store credit and put that game back on the shelf for somebody else to purchase used. Um, is it a concern, and I'm going to start with Van on this one, is it a concern that, that that's kind of going away? Like, even if a, someone like Steam will let you return a game, perhaps, um, you're not going to be able to trade it back in for store credit later because that's you don't have a physical copy of a game to trade in anymore. Yeah, and, and it's when the... We talked about all the benefits of the digital di- distribution, and I, I loved all of those when digital distribution first came out. So I started um, you know, buying everything uh, digitally, and it, it was beautiful. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the convenience and all the good stuff. And then I started purchasing hard copies again just to get into my old ways. And sure enough, I started selling them back. And honestly, now, if I can get a game, ber- physical copy versus digital distribution, I will always go for a physical copy going forward. Um, the convenience isn't worth the you know $25 I can get back for that game um, later on when I resell it uh, personally. So if, if it's available hard copy, which I don't think GameStop's going away a long time. I made that mistake 10 years ago thinking they were going to go away, and they're stronger than ever, especially with digital distribution. So um, I'm, I'm going hard copy all the time, and I think digital distribution is convenient, but I think when it boils down to it, it's not worth it to me yet. What about you, uh, Rona? What do you what do you think? Are you a big buy back or sell back gamer, or do you tend to collect? I used to, because uh, generally with my consoles, I like to go physical. I just like having the box. I like having the disc. Uh, with my PC, I don't. You know, I don't even have a CD-ROM drive anymore. Uh, but generally, with some of the games, I like to be able to. I do like the the trade them in every once in a while. Generally, GameStop's gonna rip me off if I don't beat a fresh new game right off the bat, but the fact that I can actually either sell it online for 50% off and get you know some of my money back or take it to a GameStop and get some store credit for it is just really, really nice. What about you, Shai? Are you, uh, are you the kind of guy who used to sell games back a lot or uh, not so much? I did, but I think that was predominantly like when I was in high school, when I was in college, like when money was always tight, you know what I mean? And so like I may not be able to get a new game unless I traded in like three games, right? Like it was almost like trading in games facilitated getting a new game. And so like once I got a job and actually had some dispendable, you know, income, like I think that changed to a certain extent. Like I definitely am not as anxious to go trade. Like I'm more of a collector at this point, I would say. Interesting. Yeah, I've I've always been a game collector myself. I very rarely sell games back. Um but, uh, you know, like, like you said, the future is changing and, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, us, us cranky old gamers who grew up with, with other consoles maybe have to get used to the, used to the way it is because whether we like it or not, it seems to be the accepted method. Uh, so we're running a little low on time, so I want to just get final thoughts from anybody uh, on this topic. Anything that, that you've kind of been burning to say that, uh, uh, that we haven't heard from you about? Uh, Shy? Yeah, actually, uh, just quick, I'm going to try to 
let's blurt this out, but someone came to mind while we were talking, and uh, I think it's very interesting, the concept of, of possibly the effect on console development and cost of consoles in the future. If you look at consoles now, they actually come with hard drives, and the hard drives are becoming bigger, and I think that's affecting the cost of the consoles. And I think a lot of that's because of digital distribution. So, like, in the future, what are we looking at? Like, if, if you know, like, we need one terabyte consoles or two terabyte consoles to just handle these downloaded games, like, that, that is affecting cost and, uh, you know, availability. Sure. I mean, that's something that's kept me from being a big digital distribution person, is I don't like to fill up my hard drive with games um, I like to keep a little extra space on there and so that that has discouraged me in a way because my hard drive is maybe not big enough oh well that's an embarrassing thing to admit on the internet isn't it hard drive <laughs> not big enough what about you Van uh, any final thoughts before we wrap this up no I, I, I do want to um, correct myself one thing real quick I am a huge huge digital downloader when it comes to PC. I haven't purchased a physical PC game in since I can remember, since Steam came out. Thanks a lot, Gabe. But with regards to consoles, PlayStation and whatnot, I do prefer purchasing the hard copy. And Rona, final thoughts? No, I think I pretty much said everything that I needed to say. I think uh, Shy was right on the money with his, uh, his final thought there. All right, well, uh, as always, we'd love to hear your final thoughts. Uh, if you'd like to give us a contact, drop us a line. We can be found on Twitter, at Focus Target. Um, hopefully you're watching this on YouTube, our Focus Target channel. Uh, we can also be emailed at focustargetpodcast at gmail.com. And we do have a blog, and that blog is focustarget.wordpress.com. And if you'd like to uh, drop a line to our honored guest today, Unki Rona, where could they contact you? Uh, they can contact me on Twitter at U-N-K-Y-R-O-N-A, Unky Rona, or you can actually, sometimes I'll stream, and you can find that at twitch.tv slash Unky Rona. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I want to give a, a big thank you to uh, Unky Rona for being our guest today. You were fantastic. Uh, really brought some good expertise and, and taught us, I think at least taught me some stuff that I didn't know even as we were recording the podcast. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, as always, uh, so this is Focus Target Podcast signing off. I am Smiley. I'm Shy. And I'm Van. As always, cup of sporkins, we're out.